This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I'm joined on Zoom by my friends and co-hosts, Ann Greenhall and Mike Yuseem. Ann, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing okay, Jeff. Happy to be here with you and also with Mike and uh, our guest shortly. And Jeff, I'm here too, and happy to be here with you and our guest shortly as well. Huh. Mike, do you think you're happier than Anne, or do you think <laughs> Anne is happier than you? I think a competition, usually. I think we're both happy. All right. I see how it's going to be in 2021. I see how it's going to be. All right. Well, I'll remind our listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio. Sirius XM channel 132. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So Mike and Ann, here we are opening the show uh, or opening the year with our first show of the year. Uh, I think it, it's also probably appropriate for us to note that this would, this would mark our seventh year. We are entering our seventh year of leadership in action. Hard to believe. Yeah, really. It's gone very fast. I was going to ask if you thought it had gone quite fast or quite fast. slow. I wasn't I wasn't sure. I was wondering differently if do you think leadership in America has improved? And I think Mike's asking you that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mike, I think that uh, you and we have opportunity for quite some time to come. And I would say that we have an enormous job ahead of us in reestablishing value-based, positive value-based leadership. Yeah, no, that's a better way to put it. It's not so much what has improved, it's what yet is to be done. Yes, absolutely. Well, this would this would classically be a Mike Yuseem show. He usually kicks us off at the beginning of the year, and and part of that kickoff is uh, is a request for some kind of New Year's resolution. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty flexible and adaptable guy, so I'm actually going to give you I'm going to give you a, a choice of two questions. First, Ann and Mike, as as we embark on on year seven of leadership in action. I would ask, do you have any resolutions for the new year that you would like to share with me and our listening audience? Or you can take the alternate question. And that is, you know, in the spirit of the work that we do here on Leadership in Action, looking back over six years, is there a lesson you'd want to highlight or to at least place on in prominent display as we begin this, the year of 2021? Anne, why don't we start with you? All right, I think I'm ready. Um, We have had uh, a number of guests on the show and one uh, interview stands out for me because we talked about implicit bias and unconscious association. 
And one of the takeaways from in the book by Dolly Cho was uh, not to try to aspire to be your best version of yourself. Because if I can borrow from Carol Dweck, that's a bit of a fixed mindset, as if we could ever reach that ideal version of ourselves. So rather than try to be your best self, try to be a goodish person. <laughs> so I have revised my New Year's resolution from aspire to be my best self to continue to aspire to be a goodish person. Oh, that's good. That's really hey, good. Mike, Mike, how are we doing in the competition now? No, I'm, I'm very uncompetitive. I'm going to add to that. Okay. Pointing out that uh, we have just gone through 10 days that shook the country, if not the world. And we know from all the research that we've um, sometimes even featured on the show, leadership makes a really big difference when life is changing and the way forward is unclear. So my resolution, this is rather grand, is may we see better leadership in 2021. There it is, Great. Jeff. Great. Jeff, how about you? Yeah, I think I think for me, um, you know, and any good uh, any any good teacher sets up the question so that he or she can achieve maximum credit. <laughs> so I'm going to answer both both questions uh, with one answer which will undoubtedly make me today's winner, um, not that we're keeping track. So the thing I've learned that, that I can then convert into my New Year's resolution is six years we've spent here asking questions of fascinating guests and, and asking questions of each other. And so th the power of inquiry to me has really been demonstrated on a show like this. Right. And I want to take that spirit of inquiry into 2021 and resolve to ask more questions than state conclusions. That's my resolution for Great. 2021. Jeff, that's really good. And I think it's an excellent segue to where we're going today. It is like we've been doing this for a little while. We are we're going to have a fascinating conversation today because just as Mike is highlighting the importance of leadership in, in times of um, high uncertainty, in times of crisis, in times of change. We also know that culture uh, is an incredibly important um, aspect and, a, and an incredibly important feature of managing through these periods of, of high uncertainty and high change. Um, and so we're delighted to welcome to the show today, Kevin Oakes, who has just released a book titled Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Kevin, welcome to Leadership in Action. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, if you will, let me tell our listeners a little bit more about you, and then we'll want to uh, jump right into the book and, and your motivations for, uh, for writing it. So, Kevin, you've been a pioneer in human capital for uh, over 25 years, and you are the co-founder and CEO of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, known as I4CP. And that I4CP is a leading HR research forum. Um, you're an international keynote speaker on culture and talent management, and leadership and innovation. And you serve on the board of Performative, which is a performance improvement technology company 
as well as the advisory boards of EdCast, a knowledge network firm, and Sanctuary, a health and wellness startup. Um, and finally, you serve on the board of Best Buddies Washington, um, helping to establish the first office for Best Buddies in the state um, about two years ago. So Kevin, uh, as, as we start our conversation off today, um, I, I'd like to ask maybe a, a little bit more of a personal question, and that is for yourself um, and, and your own journey as, as someone who was really focused on culture. When did you first become aware of culture um, in your own life and career, and, and how did that come about? You know, it's interesting, Jeff. I, um, I've worked with a lot of companies uh, over my career, and I've witnessed vastly different company, uh, cultures in those companies as I visited them. And I start out the book, actually, with a story um, that relates to that, and it dates back to 2009. I'm sure I had thought a lot about culture before then. But I went into two very iconic uh, tech companies in Silicon Valley, and I described the story of where the first company I went into, it was just a very cold culture. Uh, when I went behind the scenes into Cubeville, everybody seemed to be kind of crouching behind their cubes and trying to stay out of sight. And the person I met with was just sort of complaining about, you know, the company and uh, it, it was just a very uh, distinct feeling. And as I left there, I, I, I thought, you know, boy, that really kind of depressed me, you know, coming out of that organization. And I went into another organization in the afternoon and it was the exact opposite. Um, people were laughing and you know, joyous and they, you could tell they were happy to be there. They were dressed a lot more casually than the, the first company's uh, employees were. And the person I met with was very aligned with the CEO and what they were trying to accomplish in the company and had a lot of hope for the future. Um, and I, I thought back, you know, what would have happened had I invested money in those two companies uh, that day? And as I've tracked it over time, the first company would have netted me nothing, uh, no surprise. The second company would have netted me a return of many hundreds of percent. And so I tell this story sometimes to audiences and then I ask them to guess who the companies are. Um, I won't ask you to guess. The first company was HP and uh, the second company was Apple. And to conclude the story, I was telling this on stage a few years ago and everybody got a big chuckle out of it. And when I left the stage, the next speaker coming up was from HP. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, hey, you know, Kevin got a, a, you know, a story at our expense, but I want to tell you he's exactly right the way he just described our culture. And we've been making these changes to our culture to improve it. And they have. And, and you know, HP has split since then. And uh, he was from HPE. He and I have since become very good friends. Uh, but it was it's a stark contrast in a lot of organizations. And you can really kind of feel it when you walk into an organization. What is the overall culture of the company versus, you know, another organization? And so I've been fascinated with this topic for quite some time. And Kevin, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of the, the final exam question early on in, in this conversation, at, at least from an academic perspective. Um, and that is when we talk about culture, what is it we're really talking about? How, how, do, how do we describe and define culture? Um, 
You may notice in the book, I purposely didn't define culture. I might be the only guy who's ever written a book on culture and didn't define it. Uh, and I did that because I, I read a lot of definitions of culture uh, and they're kind of all over the map, you know, and, and they get very ethereal. But I think for a lot of people, um, culture is just really what's, you know, rewarded, what's, um, what's condemned inside the organization. It's the behaviors inside the organization. Uh, you know, a popular definition of culture is what gets said about the company when you're not in the room. Uh, you know, it's um, culture is really just the overall mores and and the and the uh, you know the way uh, things get done inside an organization. Uh, and I think today, particularly during the pandemic, uh, companies need to recognize your culture has changed, uh, like it or not. Now, for some of those companies, it's changed uh, and become more positive, and others have had a more negative impact. But the point of the book is you really need to, as an organization, be proactive about your culture. Don't let it just happen. Uh, you know, really take uh, action around the culture. And that was really what we set out to do when we did the initial research study for that, that is the basis of the book and what the book is really all about. Thanks, Kevin. And I want to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Our guest today is Kevin Oakes, co-founder and CEO of I4CP, an HR research firm, and the author of a new book called Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Anne, why don't I send this over to you? Okay, thank you, Jeff. And Kevin, a real pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. I just would love to follow up on your point about the impact of the pandemic on culture. And you've said that for some companies, the impact has been positive, for others, not so much. Can you give um, an illustration of that just to give us a little feel for what you mean? Yeah, sure. And we, we've actually researched um, organizations uh, around this topic, and I've talked to many. And on the positive side, sort of the silver lining of the pandemic is that a lot of employees and organizations feel that leadership has been much more empathetic uh, during this time frame than ever before. And I've seen that uh, in, in several organizations where the senior team and the CEO are communicating much more than ever before. They've put in place um, benefits and, and well-being uh, programs that weren't in place before uh, for understandable reasons. But the other aspect I think that's kind of interesting is employees feel that they understand their coworkers a lot better now that they've been remote you know, and we get jettisoned into people's living rooms and kitchens and you know on an everyday basis and even the leaders homes uh, on a regular basis and they're seeing a side of employees that they just didn't see before and so that work persona is kind of out the window and now it's all about the whole persona but on you know on the negative side i was talking with the chro of workday about this the other day we're what we've lost not being in the office together is serendipity and, and the, you know, the, the conversations that spark creativity and innovation. It's kind of hard to schedule innovation over Zoom. And so some of that is lost. I think companies are trying to be creative around that. Um, there's other aspects I think to culture that's been lost. I, I have some employees uh, that have never met anybody else inside the organization other than through Zoom because they were hired in this past year. And, you know, that's the case in a lot of organizations. And so, uh, you know, I think there's been an impact on 
you know, both positive and negative. And I think companies just need to understand what is that impact that we're seeing inside our organization during this pandemic. Very good. Mike, maybe you want to chime in on that? Follow me. Yeah, Kevin, first of all, great to have you on the program. And I've got a couple related questions about discovering the culture of a company like HP uh, or others or Apple that you've walked into. And it's sometimes said that cultural anthropologists to learn the culture of a remote location, they really have to go, quote, into the field for a couple of years. Other end of the spectrum is uh, some claim when they're interviewing candidates in the first five minutes of the interview, they pretty much have the person figured out. So to get your hands around the culture of Apple or Microsoft that you write about as well, or HP, how long does it take for you to feel comfortable? You've got a pretty good fix on the mores, the norms, and the ideas. And then the related question is, how do you figure that out? What what are the questions you ask or what do you look for when you walk in? Yeah, well, I start out the um, the book talking a lot about Microsoft um, as an example. And the very first step in these 18 action steps is to develop and deploy a comprehensive listening strategy. So more so for the executives in an organization than someone like myself coming in from the outside, I constantly tell senior teams, if you're trying to change culture, the worst thing you can do is lock yourselves in a conference room and decide what the culture is today, uh, because you're going to get it wrong. You're not going to really understand the culture. There's a certain culture you witness as the CEO and as the senior team and as leaders in the company, but it probably doesn't reflect the true culture inside the organization. And so many companies have uh, been very advanced in how they do listening inside the company. It goes way beyond that annual employee employee engagement survey that many companies do, uh, which won't be a good barometer for your culture. You know, that's one data point and you can use it since you probably already spent a lot of money for it. Um, mm. But I, I tell companies, you need to be pulsing the organization on a much more frequent basis. And with technology uh, today, you can use natural language processing uh, technology uh, coupled with artificial intelligence to allow employees to freeform uh, tell you what the you know the, the culture is and have that engine really segment and do a sentiment analysis on what are the major themes that are coming out you know from the organization. And for large companies, that's you know a real time saver, but usually much, much more accurate. So listening is critical. Yeah, Kevin, you make a really interesting uh, implicit point there, which is indeed you can figure it out. Uh, It's hard. There are um, instruments to help you along. And uh, not everybody is necessarily drawn to that, or some people don't even think culture is all that important. But you argue persuasively it is important, and you've just said through some hard work you can get your hands on it. Follow-up question is this. Let's say you have fix on, on Microsoft's culture. It's going to take you a while to really get a feel for it. And let's say you're Bill Gates or you read about Steve Ballmer and, and then Satya Nadella, the current CEO. Uh, what would be maybe the most important single line of advice to each of them to better appreciate the culture of the company and then turn it to greater advantage in terms of what they're trying to do? It's a very kind of pragmatic question there. Well, I, um, I'm such a huge fan of what Satya has done um, in the company since he's become CEO. 
And, you know, it's interesting. Those are the only three CEOs that company has ever had. Uh, and so Bill had it probably the easiest because he was, um, he was able to lay out the culture that he wanted from the start uh, and see that through. Uh, Steve probably had the hardest job because he took it over in 2000, uh, right as the dot-com crash was happening, and then managed the company through the 2008-2009 financial crisis as well. So, you know, it was not easy. But in the book, I contrast what life was like at Microsoft prior to Satya becoming CEO and under Steve, uh, because it was pretty dire. And a lot of people were saying Microsoft to become the next Sears, you know, and become just a passe kind of organization. And when Satya stepped in, I think he did so many of the right things you need to do to have effective culture renovation. And first and foremost, he partnered with his head of HR, Kathleen Hogan, uh, to be his right-hand person in making sure that the culture was what he wanted it to be going forward. And so my advice to any of those three to answer your question directly, Mike, would be to partner with HR. And I am so encouraged when I walk into an organization and that CHRO or head of HR is considered one of the you know few people on the inner circle, you know, the three or four, uh, is an integral part of the management team and is helping to direct strategy inside the organization. Because let's face it, the workforce is everything in most companies, right? And this is the person who has the pulse of the workforce. And if you have a strategic HR head, uh, you're going to be a high-performance company. It's, uh, you know, that is uh, linked together in all the research that we've done and others have done. And so I think Satya did a very smart thing in partnering with Kathleen, but the two of them and a whole team underneath them, Joe Whittinghill and others, really set out. Uh, to have some core tenants to what they were trying to do. You mentioned uh, Carol Dweck earlier in the conversation. So the growth mindset obviously was a big part of uh, the message that they were giving out there. And it was an important one. I, I live not far from the campus of Microsoft. And prior to this change, uh, the most employees had a knowledge is power uh, type of attitude. If I possess knowledge, I can kind of hold on to that knowledge, uh, take care of myself, protect myself, and use that as power. It's a complete opposite approach now. Today, it's knowledge sharing is power, and they are doing a fantastic job of sharing knowledge throughout the organization. And Satya is the one who champions that. He said, you know, I'm, I'm a learner at heart, and uh, you know, I, I don't want a bunch of know-it-alls. I want a bunch of learn-it-alls. And uh, that's the kind of attitude he set out inside of Microsoft and is, you know, just one example of some of the really core changes he's made to help Microsoft become one of the most valuable companies in the world. And uh, and that's really what's, you know, culture is inextricably linked with financial performance. And uh, you can see it in spades at Microsoft. Great. Kevin, thank you on that. Jeff, over to you. So. Kevin, the new book is called Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Um, and in, in, in my, my version, I circled two words that I wanted to make sure I asked you about. The first is renovation, and the second is unshakable. So can, can you talk to us about um, your, your obviously deliberate choice in both cases? When we... Um set out to do the initial research study that we were going to do on culture, uh, we recognize that most efforts to change culture fail. 
In fact, uh, our research shows that only 15%, so 1-5% actually are successful in setting out what they want to do. Uh, and so the goal of the research was to hone in on those successes and what was the commonalities, the blueprints around those successes. Now, when most people talk about culture change, Jeff, they use the word transformation. And if you Google culture transformation, you're going to get millions of hits. Uh, but as we got into this research, we recognized those successful companies, they don't transform their culture. They don't start from scratch. They don't create something completely different. They hold on to what made them a good company to begin with. And, and a lot of times it's their original purpose is still in play or you know their original values, but they're renovating for the future. And Microsoft's a great example of that, but many of the companies like 3M and others that I profile in the book, T-Mobile was another really interesting story. Uh, they put in some really nice renovations that will allow them to be uh, you know, agile and resilient going forward. And when changes like the pandemic that nobody predicted and nobody planned for come along, they can weather those storms much better or changes in their industry. And so culture renovation just really kind of captured the success that those that 15% was having. Uh, and that's why we came up with that, that uh, title. Um, but unshakable is another interesting term. We, um, we liked that word because particularly as you think about the, the changes that we're in today and you know every day is something new it seems, what I think most organizations want to create is an organization that is unshakable. It doesn't matter what you throw at us. Uh, we are going to uh, be resilient and agile and carry through in the future. And we, um, we profile in the book the, uh, and talk a lot early in the book about change and how ready for change organizations are. And if you're in an organization that despises change uh, and gets nervous about change and fears change, you're probably in a low performance organization. It's the companies that embrace change, but, but really get excited about it as an opportunity and almost purposely shake things up on a regular basis. Those are the companies that are going to succeed long-term and, and thrive long-term. And one of the examples I highlight in the book is around Blockbuster and, and Netflix. And, you know, certainly I would, I would say Blockbuster was a, a company that, was very resistant to change. They were at the top of their game at one point, and I talk about visiting them at you know really at the height of uh, you know when they were a powerhouse, um, and they just did not take Netflix seriously and and did not see the changes coming. Didn't sense them. Didn't um, you know just kind of ignored you know changes that were happening to their business model, and we all know how that story ends. So it's um, you know, and unshakably became a, uh, you know, an important word for us as we thought about, you know, how do companies really think about the future and think about their ability to create a future-proof organization? Yeah, thanks, Kevin, for, for both of those descriptions. I think the, the visual imagery that both a renovation and an unshakable company conjure up, especially when we live in, in what feels like a world lacking in, in the stability that we would expect, um, they, they both really uh, draw out the reader. And uh, I appreciate you filling in more detail around them. Kevin, in the first half of the show, I really appreciate how you talk about culture 
Uh, Mike and Jeff and I often get asked, you know, how do you define leadership and is leadership born or made? And I'm hearing in your response that culture is all about behaviors. And we, we rarely have the opportunity to start from, from scratch. So often we inherit culture. And then the question becomes, how do we, how do we renovate rather than transform? So now I've got a tough question for you, Kevin. Here we are, we're about, we're on the brink of changing leadership in the White House. And what advice would you give to President-elect Biden? What is the good that he, he should hang on to? <laughs> what is the foundation that he should hang on to and build upon as he charts his course for the new year? Yeah, it's fun. it's interesting, and I've been thinking a lot about this actually. So I'm glad you asked that question. I think a lot of the tenets of the book, even though it's aimed at a you know a corporate audience, I think could be applied very easily uh, to where we are in the U.S. And so for President-elect Biden, and I have a suspicion he's going to follow these a lot of these steps <laughs> without even knowing that he's following the steps that I laid out. Um, he will um, he will do several things that I think successful CEOs and organizations that I profile in the book uh, have done. You know, the first one, which we talked about earlier, is really listening to uh, his, his constituents. Um, you know, it's very easy when you're in a political party to only listen to viewpoints in that party. And I think t in today's day and age, uh, the way social media works, we just get fed kind of the same thing over and over again, depending with whether you're team blue or team red. And uh, so I think he's got to make a concerted effort to really get out there and, and listen. But there's a number, there's so many great things about America, you know, obviously that we just want to get back to and hold on to. And more than anything, um, I want to make sure um, that in my organization, I'm uniting the employee base around our purpose, and that's the that's the advice I give to to CEOs, and I just I just did yesterday. Um, that you need to be vocal uh, when things happen, like the Capitol breach, and um, and step up with your organization, remind them of the purpose, remind them of the values, and talk about the fact that a divided team rarely wins; uh, only united teams will will really prevail. And that same philosophy holds true for America. And I know Joe has said that many, many times that he wants to uh, unite us because we've been so polarized. Um, and I, I see that in great companies as well. Um, they are doing a great job to unite the organization. But, you know, I think if, uh, if I ever had the opportunity, I would walk uh, President-elect Biden through these 18 action steps because I think they're very applicable uh, to the situation he's walking into, and um, you know, and and uh, this we are we are ripe for a renovation <laughs> as a as a culture. So I, I hope uh, I hope it's successful long term. I hope we're in the the 15 percent. <laughs> so do I. Maybe just one follow up. Uh, uniting is so challenging. Is there a first step that you might recommend? I appreciate the listening and deep listening, really hearing, and then what? Yeah, so you know, I'll, I'll pull out a tenant from the book, and that is identifying the influencers and energizers in, inside your organization. And I think the same is true for the country. Uh, but I'll just, I'll relate it back to companies. 
In any organization, there are key people that always seem to be at the center of the beehive that employees are turning to for advice, for their opinions, for information that a lot of workflow just uh, goes through. And if you ask senior leaders, hey, who are those key people? They'll get a couple of the obvious ones, right? You know, they'll get number one, two, and maybe four, right? But then they'll miss number five, seven, eight, 15, you know, 20. There's a lot of people in organizations that fly under the radar that are down in the hierarchy that maybe are introverts, not extroverts, but they're still incredibly influential. And I talk in the book about identifying them because when you're trying to change culture, you need those people on board. They're ultimately gonna be your culture ambassadors. They're gonna be the people that make this happen at the ground level. And so you wanna make sure that they are understanding what you're trying to do. They're aligned with it, they're in your camp. Same thing for, for what President-elect Biden is facing. You know, He's gotta make sure those key influencers are sharing that same message and, uh, and communicating the, the message that he wants. Very good, thank you so much, Kevin. Jeff. All right, let me remind our listeners that we are Leadership in Action on Sirius XM, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And we're talking today with Kevin Oakes, who is the CEO of HR research form I4CP and author of Cultural Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Um, Kevin, your, your answer to Anne's last question um, really, it, it brings me back to two of our colleagues that, that we've had on the show um, here over the years, Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon. And um, they have uh, also studied culture a great deal. And, and one of their recommendations has been when trying to change culture or to, uh, to use your metaphor, metaphor, renovate culture, one of the things we're trying to do is to change the environment and then model the appropriate behaviors in the new environment. When you think about the role of these influencers and, and energizers that you were just discussing, um, how much of their role is to serve as a role model for others? And where should employees look to see what desired behaviors um, actually look like in action? Yeah. You know, this combines sort of Ann's question with yours, Jeff, but one of the things we talk about in the book very early on is just the importance of leaders and leaders setting the tone for the culture. And I think when we talk about behaviors, that's this is where it starts, certainly. Um, one of the chapters in the book is defining the desired behaviors. Mm -hmm. And uh, the successful organizations, they spend a lot of time communicating that. They train leaders throughout the organization on those desired behaviors, not just at the top level, but they go down to all leaders in the organization. Because the worst thing that can happen is you have a bunch of words on a PowerPoint, but then leaders don't model that, right? They don't walk the talk. And, and what employees are gonna respect is, uh, is, is the actions of those leaders more than anything. Uh, and they're gonna model those actions. And you know, I think uh, this, this holds true for, your, for the uh, the United States analogy, and um, one of the things I talk about in the book that leaders need to do is paint a vision for the future. So when you're trying to set out a new culture in the organization, oftentimes you're doing that because something went wrong beforehand, right? 
and this is a great uh, analogy to what's going on in the US, you almost have to resist uh, all the blame that is easy to place on the previous regime and dwell on all the mistakes that were made beforehand. You can acknowledge those, you don't ignore those, but the, the important thing you've got to do as a leader is paint that vision for the future. You want people looking ahead, not focused behind, and you want them to see what you see for that vision. And uh, I outlined several um, companies where I think the CEO has done that. F5 Networks was one of them that comes to mind where their CEO, uh, he told me after we got into this conversation around culture renovation, he had been there a few years. He said, you know, I wasn't using the term, Kevin, but that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to renovate this company, paint a vision for the future, um, respecting what happened, you know, that, that, that got us to where we are today and not ignoring some of those mistakes. Uh, what happens a lot of times is when a new leader comes in and you, uh, and if you don't respect, you know, what's been built beforehand, um, the employees take notice of that, right? They put a lot of hard work into where you are. So you've got to make sure you respect that. But that painting the vision for the future, I think is such a key uh, component. And I outline, you know, what Satya did at Microsoft and what other CEOs did effectively to paint that vision. Mike. Over to you. Uh, Kevin, you alluded a few minutes ago to the vital role of the Chief Human Resource Officer, CHRO. And a couple questions for you, as if uh, you're talking with a CHRO who might pose the two following questions. Uh, number one, to what extent should I be really careful in hiring at the entry level or hiring from the outside? to bring in people who share our culture already versus being confident that once they're there, they're going to take in the ambience and learn to do it. So what's your thought? How important is it to get the right people culturally versus allowing them to accept the culture once they're there? Oh, it's, uh, it's very important, Mike. Uh, you know, culture fit is something that the talent acquisition leaders I work with talk about quite a bit. And it's important that when you are hiring and have a pipeline of individuals that you are thinking about that culture fit long-term. Now, sometimes culture fit gets a bad rap um, because uh, some people have complained that it, you know, it can lead to homogeneity in your organization and you're not, you don't have enough diversity if you're too focused on culture fit. I don't really buy into that. I, I think if you have DE&I as a, core tenant of your culture um, and are looking for that when hiring, uh, then you obviously can look at culture fit in that light and, you know, be be very diverse and uh, in the workforce. Um, so I think it's important when you're bringing those new people on. I also think it's important to not tolerate, um, you know, folks that are very detrimental to your culture, no matter how successful they are. And Bob Sutton at, at Stanford has written a lot about this. He had a whole book on it. Uh, with a title that's probably uh, not safe for a, a G-rated show, but right. uh, you know, it's uh, I, I, the more I have talked to organizations, um, it's very clear to me they are focused on the how, um, not just the ends, right? Um, and uh, I think that's very healthy. It's a very healthy uh, uh, trend that's happening in companies. Yeah. So a second question that might come to you from a CHRO. Uh, the tone of the top, and you've said this in the show and it's certainly in your book, the tone of the top is vital from the board, the top executives. 
Having said that, though, to what extent would you argue that everybody carries the culture, everybody is a teacher in their own way, and thus, when it comes to cultural sustenance and then transformation when it should be done, to what extent should people in the middle ranks and even the front lines pay attention to culture along with everything else they have to worry about? What do you think? Well, I, I you know, again, I, I do think that tone is set, but then you want to make sure that everybody is uh, operating, you know, within the values that you've set out um, and uh, exhibiting the behaviors that you want to see inside the organization. It can go sideways pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I talk a lot about in the book um, that there's often a lot of hoopla initially in certain organizations about changing culture. But if you don't really focus on maintaining that and, and continue to work at it, you can easily kind of slip back to the way things used to be. And so I think it goes all the way down to the ground ground level, Mike, and uh, you've got to make sure that uh, through a variety of measures that you've set out that the culture is, um, you know, what you had, you had set out to change. Now, I think what's, what's interesting is what's happening to public companies. The SEC made a very important change to public company reporting just a few months ago, uh, where human capital measures are now required if they're material to your business. Now, you know, what's material and what's not material can be very subjective, but we're going to see a lot more human capital reporting in 10Ks and 10Qs uh, going forward. And more and more boards are paying attention to culture measures and trying to understand the culture of the organization that they govern. Uh, boards certainly don't want to be sitting on a, you know, a Wells Fargo, you know, sales scandal or a you know, a Boeing 737 issue, which the House called it, you know, a culture of concealment is, was what led to, you know, some of those issues. Uh, boards want to make sure that they, um, that the companies that they're uh, working for have a healthy culture and that the culture is trending in the right direction. So we're seeing more measures being uh, looked at at the board level. And uh, we're also seeing some culture subcommittees get set up, just like an audit committee or, you know, compensation committee, you're seeing culture subcommittees get set up at the board level uh, to examine this more closely. Uh, and I think all those are good, um, you know, very good indicators of how important this issue is. Yeah, it's great. Jeff, back to you. All right. Thank you, Mike. And I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Our guest today is Kevin Oakes, who is the author of Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Um, Kevin, we are uh, amazingly drawing towards the end of our time here. And there's there's one topic I, I want to make sure that I raise with you before, uh, before we have to say goodbye. I, I was really struck um, by step number 10, which is about collaboration. And, and collaboration is something that's talked about so frequently within uh, the business press, certainly within the national press, um, and, and even relates back to the conversation that, or the questions Anne was asking you about President-elect Biden. Um, what are the enabling features of collaboration as a cultural force? And then what are some of the shadow sides of relying on collaboration? We, um, we've done quite a bit of research around this, Jeff, and uh, we've partnered with um, Rob Cross. He's, a, he's up at Babson as a professor on a lot of that research and has done a lot of work into the importance of being 
purposeful with collaboration. Um, I, I talk about conscious collaboration. Uh, and the point here is don't let it just happen in your organization, be proactive about it and really understand um, how collaboration is happening and what can be improved going forward. Uh, we have witnessed um, over the last several years, a lot of collaborative overload happening. And I'm sure you all can, can relate to that. But in organizations, uh, you have some of those people I talked about that are at the center of the beehive, those influencers and those energizers, they're also at risk of being overloaded by too much collaboration. And today with so many ways to reach people, whether it's, you know, we're on Zoom now, but, you know, Slack and Teams and, you know, a variety of different ways you can talk to people. It's really flattened the hierarchy and made those, you know, those key people very accessible. You want to make sure that it's safe for them to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm suffering from collaborative overload and give them some leeway to shift some of those uh, those requests to other folks. And there's a number of techniques that we've talked about in some of that research to, to help with that collaborative overload. But positive collaboration is so critical in companies. And when you conduct organizational network analysis, we're, we're big proponents of that, where you, um, through surveys and through monitoring some of those collaboration vehicles, you can really see where that communication flow is happening. Uh, you want to make sure that it's a healthy environment. Oftentimes when one company acquires another, it's uh, very common for you know, those two companies to remain in their silos for years afterwards, right? And they don't collaborate and you miss all the benefits that you wanted to have from that acquisition. Or you have departments and divisions or geographies that just really aren't collaborating you know, across lines. The healthy companies, they make sure that there's a lot of um, communication uh, flow happening throughout the organization. Sometimes uh, if you have a very robust talent mobility program where you're moving talent around in the, in the company proactively, that can really help um, with collaboration overall. And I talk about that in the book too, but it is such a key component. And I devoted a whole chapter to this subject because it was clear that in some companies, Patagonia was one of them that I talked about. That's such a critical component of them being a, a high performance organization. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the, the focus on collaboration, but but conscious and purposeful collaboration, as you described, Kevin. Well, Kevin, Mike, and Anne, we are reaching the end of our time together here, so we'll, we'll carry our tradition forward of our closing after-action review. Um, and, and I'm feeling generous at the beginning of 2021. I, I'm going to give you up to like 30 seconds to respond here, and... <laughs> And Anne, I'm going to start with you. Kevin, we'll give you the last word. Um, as you look back on today's conversation, Anne, could you highlight something that you'll you'll take with you um, and and keep thinking about? Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. Well, I really am struck by the notion of renovation as opposed to transformation. So I really like that idea of building on a foundation, making behavioral change, and trying to create. Uh, a structure, if you will, an organization that is unshakable. So thank you for that, Kevin. All right, Jeff, I got uh, 15 seconds on learn it all, not know it all. That, that really stuck with me. It's a great way to, to sum up so many thoughts. And second, last 15 seconds here, uh, Kevin really makes the argument, and, and I'm a total devotee as I heard it from him, 
that when we think about what makes a company work, what, what brings people together to get the job done, strategy for sure, uh, execution of course, pay for performance, but don't forget culture. It's an independent and very powerful force. We have to be a master of that, just like as a as a executive, a master of strategy and execution. Great, thank you, Mike. And I, I think for me, it, it it's really knowing that that we observe and we understand culture in the behaviors that are exhibited, uh, not necessarily in the words that are displayed. Uh, and so to to keep an anthropologist's eye out as you try to understand your own culture um, for what you're seeing, not what, not necessarily just what you're hearing. Kevin, a final thought from you? Well, what I hope, uh, is, so first of all, thank you, uh, and Jeff, Mike, for having me on the show today, and thanks for the great questions. And what I hope people who read the book take away from it, it's a very practical, practical actionable guide uh, to how to change culture. And a lot of books that I've read on culture get very ethereal. Um, it's very, uh, you know, very high in, pie in the sky kind of uh, concepts. And I wanted to bring this down to ground level and provide a blueprint for companies to follow that's very uh, seated in the research that preceded the book. Uh, and then also the corporate examples that are in the book. And so uh, for the readers out there, I, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you take away some actions that you can really implement inside your own organizations. All right, well, thanks again, Kevin. We, we appreciate it one more time for our listeners. The, the book is Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Um, available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Um, and Kevin, I have to say, I, I certainly appreciated the quick anecdote that Amazon was able to recommend your own book to you while you were writing it through their own algorithm. So um, I had a, a hearty chuckle there. Um, thank you all to our listeners. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow the show and the channel on Twitter at SXM Business. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 